Speech is powerful. It can stir people to action, move them to tears of both joy and sorrow, and, as it did here, inflict great pain. On the facts before us, we cannot react to that pain by punishing the speaker. As a nation, we have chosen a different course to protect even hurtful speech on public issues to ensure that we do not stifle public debate. That choice requires that we shield Westboro from tort liability for its picketing in this case. That was Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts back in 2011 delivering his opinion on the court case Snyder v. Phelps, where the court upheld that the Westboro Baptist Church had the right to picket at the funeral of Albert Snyder, a gay soldier who was killed during the Iraq War. Snyder's uh, parents sued for emotional distress, but the court, in an 8-1 decision, agreed that the Westboro Baptist Church had the full right to protest as they pleased. For some people, that decision was an outrage. For others, it was a relief. For plenty more, it was a sign that our justice system was upholding the First Amendment properly, and for many, it was certainly a sign that our justice system was failing. The variety of opinions that emerge on an issue as important as free speech speaks to why whole books and essays and movies have been created to explain the most minute details of free speech, and why it's a cornerstone for the American political system. But beyond that, it's become a cornerstone for governments around the world, and it's integrated itself into political systems, often by the demand of the people. Today, hopefully, we'll get to talk about why that is and what purpose it serves in society. I'm Cole, and this is Political Theory. Now, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution reads, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, end quote. Summed up, it really is an amendment about the ability to say what you want, whether it's about a politician, a business, a deity, or whatever else, and We'll start today by looking briefly at the history of free speech and its evolution in our society, and then going on to talk about the various interpretations and issues with free speech, things like hate speech, censorship, discrimination, school prayer, and so on, and we'll end by talking about where free speech is going, especially in the context of a more technologically integrated world. But before we can talk about the future, we ought to talk about the past and where this idea of free speech comes from. Like much of our democracy, free speech goes back to the 5th century BC Greece during the Golden Age of Athens, where citizens had relative free speech and could talk openly about ideas in the world around them. It was like the Greek statesman Pericles said, quote, And not only in our public life are we free and open, but a sense of freedom regulates our day-to-day -day life with each other. End quote. Well, certainly Athens had relative free speech and open expression. It must be acknowledged that they were far from perfect. Consider the trial of Socrates, where the philosopher Socrates was put on trial for calling into question the gods of the state, for, quote, corrupting the young with his radical philosophical ideas about ethics and his ideas on education and government, which, it's worth noting, were critical of democracy, and, and so on. And Socrates was put on trial, and he was convicted in a very close vote. He's poisoned, and he dies. And I mention this for two reasons. The first being that we tend to look on this period as, you know, a time when everything was idealistic, and a time that we should strive to recreate in terms of our ideals, but really the golden age of Athens was far from a golden age. But I also mention it because it speaks to the historical trend that free speech has often been tolerated as long as it sits within the boundary of what's acceptable. And I say that because it'll come up again later in the podcast, and I thought it made some good sense to preface it here. 
Now, by no means was the right of free speech limited to Greece. In the Maori dynasty, only about a century after Socrates, the king Ashoka demonstrates a unique tolerance for all religions and people, and in the Roman Republic, free speech was relatively commonplace, and citizens could go and speak in the forum about their ideas, and they even had democratic elections to elect senators and other positions. But it's during the Enlightenment period, starting in the, 5th century, uh, the 15th century AD, that free speech really begins to take root as a commonplace political theory. Prominent Enlightenment thinker John Locke says in his letter concerning religious toleration, quote, The only fence against the world is a thorough knowledge of it, end quote. And we really start to see an emphasis placed on the importance of free speech and the value of an educated public. Voltaire says, quote, Think for yourselves, and let others do so too, end quote. And David Hume in 1742 writes about the liberty of the press and revolutions like those in America and France are born out of these ideals. Certainly, thinkers like Thomas Hobbes took up opposing attitudes and argued in favor of monarchies, but the overall movement during this period was to embrace free speech, and it translated into many of the political ideas that we hold commonplace. But as the idea of free speech became more widely embraced and grew to fit more scenarios, so too did questions arise, and one of the first ones, and still today most prominent one, deals with hate speech, and whether or not hate speech should be protected under, at least in American society, the First Amendment. So let's talk about that. Hate speech has a very broad definition. You can direct hate at almost anything, another person, an institution, a deity, and so on. What connotates hate speech tends to be the extremity of it, but there's widespread debate over what hate speech really is. People like Pamela Geller, who promotes an anti-Islamist agenda and was the organizer of the Mohammed cartoon that was just recently attacked, as well as, well, the members of the infamous Westboro Baptist Church that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Well, they don't consider what they say to be hate speech, but believe me, plenty of others do. Bearing the subjectivity of a term like hate speech in mind, because it will come up again in a second, let's start with the side that says hate speech should not be protected under the First Amendment, and some speech, like hateful speech, ought to be censored. Many people argue that there is a certain expectation of respect that is necessary in society in order for it to be as functional as it can be, and hate speech violates that exception. Jeremy Waldron, who's a New Zealand professor of law and philosophy, writes in his book The Harm in Hate Speech, quote, in a well-ordered society, everyone can enjoy a certain assurance as they go about their business. They know that when they leave home in the morning, they can count on not being discriminated against or humiliated or terrorized, end quote. A more productive and peaceful society is one where people have the assurance that they don't have to live their life in fear of being targeted or attacked. And I say attacked because oftentimes hate speech tends to incite violence. Osama bin Laden preached hate speech against Americans that resulted in 9-11. The KKK preached hate speech against non-white peoples that resulted in uh, lynchings and mass violence. And Hitler used hate speech to rally the German people to support an anti-Islamist and violent ideology that targeted Jewish, LGBT, and ethnic minorities and ultimately resulted in the Holocaust. Susan Benish, who's the director of the Dangerous Speech Project, uh, wrote in her paper, Countering Dangerous Speech, New Ideas for Genocide Prevention, quote, by teaching people to view other human beings as less than human and as mortal threats, thought leaders can make atrocities seem acceptable and even necessary as a form of collective self-defense, end quote. Hate speech promotes discourse and disorder in society. It devalues people and makes, as Benish said, some people seem inferior to others, which we can certainly agree is the opposite of the idea that all men are created equal. But also consider hate speech in the form of cyberbullying, which has in many cases led to tragic instances of suicide. Are those bullies and what they say protected under freedom of speech when it directly leads to another person's death? Certainly it was the choice of the person to end their life. But to deny such clear links is ludicrous, and to say, free, uh, to say it's free speech is to give legal protection to people who want to justify homicide with free speech, or at least that is 
all collectively the argument in favor of stopping hate speech from being openly expressed and protected under the First Amendment. But on the other side, many argue that hate speech should be fully protected under the First Amendment, and that I should be free to say what I want, and you should be free to say what you want, even if it is hateful. Now, if you take a textualist interpretation of the law, meaning that you believe it should be upheld exactly as it was written, rather than being adjusted for you know, the time in the modern era, then you most likely stand in favor of all speech being treated equal, seeing as the Constitution is fairly explicit in the way it says no speech should be abridged. And the only way to have true free speech is to, well, have all speech treated equal. If I don't have the right to say I dislike something, then I don't have true free speech at all. As Noam Chomsky put it, quote, If we don't believe in freedom of expression for people we despise, we don't believe in it at all, end quote. Now, you could say sure, and you have a right to express your disagreement with something, but there comes a point when it's too extreme and has negative consequences. Now, you could say sure, and you have a right to express your disagreement with something, but there comes a point when it is too extreme and has negative consequences, like suicide or fear or violence. But if I was looking at it from the perspective of endorsing all speeches protected under the First Amendment, I would respond by pointing out that the subjectivity of a term like hate speech leaves an open door for government to interpret what, free, what hate speech is, and that's dangerous to leave it to the institution in power to decide what ideas can be expressed and which ones will be prosecuted, because of how prone to abuse that is. Consider that Article 35 of the Chinese Constitution says, quote, Citizens of the People's Republic of China enjoy freedom of speech, of the press, of assembly, of association, of procession, and of demonstration, end quote. But at the same time, China was ranked the sixth worst country for freedom of speech practiced by reporters without borders. And a lot of censorship in China is justified by labeling what people are trying to say as hate speech and likely to incite violence and pose a threat to stability. It's a great example of where government abuse of a term like hate speech can be pointed to and actually seen the real-world effects of. And with the amount of influence and power that we hand over to our government, if they were to abuse free speech, it would have an equally dangerous, more widespread, and probably even more harmful consequence uh, than the smaller repercussions of allowing hate speech. Effectively, what it comes down to is that many who argue in favor of treating hate speech as free speech and upholding its protection believe that the... Uh, the individualistic freedoms that are infringed upon when people are allowed to openly practice hate speech are far outweighed in terms of the damage that can be done by the damage that can be done if we leave it up to government to censor based on hate speech, and subsequently because of the risk that we take in handing over the power to government to abuse terms like hate speech and their definitions, that that far outweighs whatever the smaller individualistic freedoms are, and that the damage that a government can do is far worse than whatever individualistic freedoms might be infringed upon on a minute scale. It's like the musician Tom Morello said, the only bad F-word is FCC. Now, in our legal system, the Supreme Court has upheld hate speech as long as there can't be clear links to national security, violence, disruption, or chaos. Take the 1969 case U.S. v. O'Brien. David Paul O'Brien was arrested for burning draft cards in protest to the Vietnam War, but the Supreme Court ruled that Contrary to the government's position that his burning of draft cards interfered with their ability to fight the war in Vietnam and subsequently was putting Americans in danger, the court ruled that O'Brien was simply exercising his right to free speech. In a similar case in 1971, the Supreme Court ruled in Cohen v. California that Paul Roberts Cohen could wear a jacket in public saying F the draft, and in the 1919 case Debs v. the U.S., the court ruled that demonstrators protesting World War I were not interfering with the government's ability to recruit soldiers, and that they had not violated the Espionage Act of 1917, which made acts that interfered with foreign policy punishable by law, 
Well, they ruled that they hadn't violated either one of those things so significantly that it undermined their right to free speech. And if we went with that line of reasoning, that censorship for the sake of stability and safety is beneficial, then we can reach a point which says that censorship is plenty justified. One line of reasoning goes that censorship is an effective way to keep the peace, especially in times of conflict, and several times precedents have been set that demonstrate the effectiveness of censorship as a means to keep stability. Going all the way back to the roots of America in 1798, John Adams passed the Alien and Sedition Acts in order to quell the rebellion that was starting to gain steam in light of the whiskey tax. In order to establish stability, censorship on speech against the government was temporarily needed. And it worked. Obviously. But even more recently, we still operate by similar principles. In light of the Ferguson protests in Missouri, a curfew was set in place to stop excessive rioting at night. Similarly, in Baltimore, a curfew was put in place to stop the violence that was raging on in light of police shootings. And I think it's pretty easy to argue that a curfew is a restriction on freedom of speech. You're telling people when they cannot and can express their views publicly. And if you have somebody who works from sun up to sundown, uh, you know, the only time that they have to express their views is when the curfew is in place. The only time that they have to go exercise their public right to protest is when the curfew is in place, and in that way you've limited their ability to go and, you know, practice freedom of speech. But still, both of those curfews stop potential anarchy from erupting and from creating an even more dangerous and hostile situation in those regions. So, at that point, many can point to those examples to say that censorship is justified, especially in the face of potential instability and potential excessive violence. Now, this raises an obvious question. How do we define dangerous without creating a slippery slope situation that's prone to abuse by the government as a means to, well, shut down their political enemies by labeling them as dangerous, like China does? Well, the Supreme Court says that we must rely on the concept of whether or not an action creates clear and present danger. Now, that term, clear and present danger, comes from a 1919 Supreme Court ruling, Schenck v. the United States, where the court ruled that Charles Schenck was not protected under the First Amendment in his distribution of pamphlets, encouraging people to, if they were drafted, disobey their orders and not report for military service. The court ruled that his encouragement of people to break the law posed clear and present danger, and thus was not justified. Similarly, in the 1927 case Whitney v. California, the court ruled that Anita Whitney was not protected under the First Amendment in encouraging people to overthrow the government and establish a communist one instead, because, again, her actions created clear and present danger. But then in 1969, the court ruled in Brandenburg v. Ohio that a KKK meeting, which alluded to overthrowing the government, was not strong enough to qualify as clear and present danger. The variety of cases that have appeared and the even greater variety of ways that the court has ruled on them clearly speaks to the fact that that term is subjective, and it really means that we here in the United States deal with the justification of censorship on a case-by-case -case basis. But generally speaking, the court has agreed that it takes a high bar in order for something to be worth censoring. And certainly the court has upheld that somebody being offended by what you're saying is not a strong enough qualifier, but that intimidation and threat is. In the 1988 case Hustler Magazine v. Falwell, Pastor and political commentator Jerry Falwell bought charges against Hustler magazine for portraying him in a, let's just say, a less than positive light in their magazines. The court upheld that the magazine had a right to mock and parody public figures. On several occasions, namely RAVV City of Paul, which was argued in 1992, and the 2003 case Virginia v. Black, the court ruled that cross-burning was legal, even though it could be considered targeting Christianity and subsequently hate speech. Here's then-Associate Justice Sandra Day O'Connor reading the court's opinion 
of why a law banning cross-burning could be constitutional, although they ruled that the Virginia law was not, and why the court overturned the convictions of several men convicted under the Virginia law. The hallmark of the protection of free speech under the First Amendment is to allow free trade and ideas. The protections afforded by the First Amendment, however, are not absolute, and the government may prohibit true threats. True threats encompass those statements where the speaker means to communicate a serious expression of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence to a particular individual. Intimidation in the constitutionally proscribable sense of the word is a type of true threat. The First Amendment permits Virginia to outlaw cross burnings done with the intent to intimidate because burning a cross is a particularly virulent form of intimidation. Now, the next place that contingencies about free speech constantly arise deal with obscenity and the idea that if something is so grotesque and obscene, like maybe child pornography, it should be illegal. The argument in favor of censoring obscene materials like perhaps excessive violence, drug use, and sex in, uh, in the public space, like on television, is that if we allow true open expression, we risk society developing a poor moral compass, if you will. If we don't outright ban something like child pornography and rely on parents to be able to protect their kids from the innumerable amounts of horrid things in the world, or if we simply cross our fingers and hope that kids won't be influenced by them because they're not curious enough to try and learn about these horrid things, then we're simply setting ourselves up for failure. In fact, many studies, like those from McAfee, the computer security firm, found that up to 70% of teenagers hide their internet activity from their parents, and it's not that hard for kids to stumble onto things they shouldn't see. I still remember being pretty young and flipping through the channels in order to find, I think it was Disney Channel, and uh, I was pretty emotionally scarred when I accidentally turned on a nude scene from the movie Woodstock. Many people will cite cases like that, where the parents' attempt to save their kids from obscenity is useless with the amount of content that swirls around in the public area, or in the public arena. Furthermore, many people who argue in favor of the censorship of obscenities do so because they feel that openly allowing things like drug and violence to be expressed in public can lead to their normalization. The normalization, that is, of, of things like drug and violence. Researchers Brad Bushman and Raoul Huseman examined over 431 studies and summarized their, fun, their findings on the effects of violent media as, uh, quote, children who watch violent movies and TV or who play violent video games imitate the aggressive scripts they see, become more condoning to violence, start to believe the world is a more hostile place, become emotionally desensitized to violence, and lose empathy for victims. The violence they see justifies to them their own violent acts. The violence they see arouses them, and the violence they see cues aggressive ideas for them." End quote. At a 2010 study on over 4,500 subjects published in the U.S. National Library of Medicine, found that, quote, "...the evidence strongly suggests that exposure to violent video games is a causal risk factor for increased aggressive behavior, aggressive cognition, and aggressive effect." and for decreased empathy and pro-social behavior, end quote. The only way many people argue to stop ourselves from installing poor morals into future generations that incites drug abuse and violence is to employ censorship to protect people from these dangerous influences. On the other hand, many people make the case against censoring materials like pornography. Bear in mind that child pornography is already illegal under consent laws. Or uh, make the case against censoring excessive violence on TV or open drug use in the media. 
because, well, first off, censorship is a very slippery slope, and if we provide government with the justification to censor media on the argument that it could lead to poor morals and more violence, then we take away the freedom of people to choose how they want to live their life. If I want to watch violent TV, then not only is it the right of the producers to make that show, but my right to watch it. Freedom is a critical part of our country, and many will argue that we ought to uphold it and stick to our morals, and the abuse of freedom by the government, especially on the media, could have far worse repercussions than smaller consequences of an open media, like the arguments with hate speech. In On Liberty, John Stuart Mill writes, quote, If the arguments of the present chapter are of any validity, there ought to exist the fullest liberty of professing and discussing as a matter of ethical conviction any doctrine, however immoral it may be considered, end quote. And really, humans are able to make decisions for themselves, and self-censorship is a reasonable expectation. If you don't want to see excessive violence, then for God's sakes, don't watch a Quentin Tarantino film. And with parents having increasing controls over the media that their kids have access to through things like filters and controls on television, the internet, and other mediums, it's not unreasonable for us to expect parents to be able to censor their kids. At least that's what many people who argue in favor of open expression without any censorship whatsoever argue. Now, the legal system in the United States has ruled on a few times on how obscenity should be dealt with, with varying opinions. In 1992, the court ruled in Todd v. Rochester Community Schools uh, that Slaughterhouse-Five could not be banned from Michigan libraries and classrooms, and the Court of Appeals of Michigan declared, quote, Vonnegut's literary dwellings on war, religion, death, Christ, God, government, politics, and any other subjects should be as welcome in the public schools of this state as those of Machiavelli, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Melville, Lenin, McCarthy, or Walt Disney. The students of Michigan are free to make of Slaughterhouse-Five what they will, end quote. But then in the 1973 case Miller v. California, the court created this three-pronged test uh, for deciding whether or not material should be protected by the First Amendment. One, whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work, taken as a whole, appeals to the prurient interest. Two, whether the work depicts or describes in an offensive way sexual conduct or excretory functions, specifically defined by applicable state law. And third, whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. The first part, uh, the first two parts there, I think, are relatively straightforward, asking whether or not the work fits in with societal standards of acceptable sexuality, which would certainly be different today than they would have been back in 1700. But that last part is particularly interesting, at least I think so. It requires us to examine a piece of art, art's of course a broad term here, and decide whether it has value, specifically in four different contexts, literary, artistic, political, and scientific. See, after the decision, there was a string of prosecutions that resulted all across the nation in the forced closing of pornography theaters and new dancers and stuff like that. But who is to say that in a culture where what we will consider acceptable in 20 years is as unpredictable as Uncle Ken on his third beer at Thanksgiving, that something like pornography, not necessarily child pornography, just regular pornographic film, shouldn't be allowed to be publicly shown. It's really all about how society chooses to define acceptable and where they get their morals from. Some people's morals are born from, you know, their religion and the Bible. Others from their parents, others from books or movies, and I think most people probably from an accumulation of life experiences. But whatever it is, or wherever you get your morals from, there's no question that it fluctuates generation to generation. For God's sakes, when the 1953 movie The Moon is Blue came out, it was ridiculed for portraying sex in such a casual manner. The Supreme Court of Kansas banned the film. The Catholic Legion of Decency condemned the film, and it caused massive public outcry. Uh, and it caused massive public outcry for being so racy. But the trailer for Mad Max: Fury Road showed more skin than that entire movie. But 
really, if we want to ensure that future generations have free speech to the fullest extent, and that they're still able to define what they want to set as the standards, which is really a form of freedom, then many people will argue that no censorship should take place, because then we can find future generations to what they can consider acceptable, and that's a restriction on freedom. At the end of the day, our political system has upheld that people are generally free to say and do things as they want, and that it's up to society to have a litmus test for what qualifies as moral versus immoral. In a capitalist society, it kind of makes sense, because if a theater shows a film that people don't approve of, or a bookstore sells a book that's questionable, they risk getting boycotted and losing money. We do have a system that holds obscenity in place by requiring people, especially those with the choice of whether or not to distribute materials, to seriously evaluate the consequences. The question simply is, is that enough? Now, at some point, I plan to do a whole episode of this podcast on the function of religion and politics and political systems, but in the context of the First Amendment, it makes sense to look at the freedom of it. Take something like school prayer. There are two distinct sides to whether or not prayer should be allowed in school, and both cite free speech as the reason why. On the one hand, many people say that a teacher has the right to express his or her religious views, and that if they want to pray in before or after class, and that is their right to free speech. If a, you know, if a student wants to lead class prayer, then they're simply exercising their right to religion, and other students can have the choice as to whether to participate or not. On the other hand, by putting a kid into a position where they could feel compelled to pray, or where they're forced to learn about a certain religious perspective as part of their education, like creationism, or something religiously connected, well, then that's a potential violation of their First Amendment, right? While a student could object to praying or learning about creationism, or whatever else it might be that the curriculum is based on, by putting the child into a position where they could suffer both ridicule, both ridicule, while a student can object to praying or learning about creationism or whatever else the uh, curriculum might be based on, by putting the child into a position where they could suffer both ridicule and grade-based consequences for their freedom of religion, many people argue that that's a violation of their right to express freedom of religion because they're being so heavily compelled. The Supreme Court in the 1962 case Engel v. I'm not sure if it's Vitale or Vitale, but whichever one it is, the court ruled that even non-denominational prayer, where students can choose to remain silent, like in the scenario that was just presented, well, the court ruled that does violate the First Amendment. But also by putting taxpayer dollars towards a certain religious perspective and thus using taxpayer money to propagate a certain religion, many people argue that this is also a violation of freedom of religion. Consider a Muslim taxpayer living in an otherwise all-Christian state. Well, he or she as a Muslim doesn't have much of a choice when it comes to where their money is going, if the curriculum is denominational, and if it's based on Christian values, but still, their money is being used to propagate a certain religious view, which many say is a violation of that Muslim person's right to practice religion. And that's what the Supreme Court said in the 1948 case McCullum v. Board of Education, where they said that schools could not use taxpayer money to fund forced religion classes. To use an example that was prominent in the news only a few weeks ago, Indiana recently signed a bill into law that allowed people to not serve other people in their business on the basis of their religious views. What this effectively meant was that a business owner could choose not to serve pizza to an LGBT couple if they did not support gay rights on a religious basis, and controversy, like most things in America, erupted. On the one hand, many people accused the law of providing legal protection for discriminating against LGBT people. Furthermore, many said that when a business opens up, they do so in the public arena, right? They rely on public resources like roads, and many energy companies receive support from the government. If there's a break-in, they'll rely on the police. If there's a fire, they'll rely on the fire department. Furthermore, the argument goes that religion and expression certainly does have a place in society, but in places where you have a reasonable expectation of courteous treatment and respect, like a business, 
then you have to be expected to treat people equally and operate under a code of conduct that works towards order and equality. Discrimination does not promote that agenda. Religion is for the church and the home, places where you go to practice religion, but businesses are a separate entity entirely. And lastly, many people who argued against the law argued that corporations aren't people, and that they couldn't hold religious views, and thus don't have a right to propagate their religious views when it results in exclusion. On the other hand, many people who defended the law said that people are free to express their religious beliefs, and that extends into all walks of life. Corporations are built on people and their belief that... The, uh, Corporations are built on people and their beliefs, and they are just as much entitled to that opinion as a person is. The Supreme Court upheld that idea in the recent case Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, where the court ruled that the arts and crafts store Hobby Lobby was so closely held as a company that, given its size and style of management, was able to refuse to provide contraception on the grounds that it violated their right to practice religion, implying that the corporation could have religious views. Furthermore, you choose to open up a business, and subsequently, many argue that you ought to have a choice in how you run it. In order for freedom of religion to be truly upheld, it must extend to all parts of our life. And here's Indiana Governor Mike Pence being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos defending that viewpoint. Well, let me explain to you. The purpose of this bill is to empower and has been for more than 20 years, George. This is not speculative. The purpose of this legislation, which is the law in all 50 states in our federal courts, and it's the law by either statute or court decisions in some 30 other states, is very simply to empower individuals when they believe that actions of government impinge on their constitutional First Amendment freedom of religion. And frankly, George, there's a lot of people across this country uh, who uh, you're looking at the Obamacare uh, and the Hobby Lobby decision, looking at other cases who feel uh, that their religious liberty is being infringed upon. Uh, and, uh, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act at the federal level and all the states now, including Indiana, who have it, are simply about addressing that. This is not about discrimination. This is about empowering people to confront government. There's certainly plenty more things to talk about when we talk about free speech. But I wanted to end today by talking about the future of these freedoms. In the 21st century, there's no question that we are infinitely more interconnected. But that also means that people have unprecedented access to new platforms on which they can express their opinion. Whether it's an online, sophisticated philosophy chat room or the less than sophisticated YouTube comment section. Now, there's two things I wanted to talk about to end the show in terms of the internet and free speech. And the first is net neutrality. Net neutrality is a lot of things, but at its core, it's the idea that all internet should be equally accessible. In other words, internet providers like Comcast should not be able to block or slow down the loading of one website simply because they don't like the content on the website. Or, if you want to take an even more capitalistic approach, because they've struck deals with competing websites to slow others down. If we have net neutrality, then we make sure that nobody's voice is being blocked by big corporations who have control over this kind of thing. If we don't have net neutrality, then we keep the internet competitive and we make sure that businesses have the freedom to run their business as they wish. There's no burdening regulation on these businesses and corporations that deal with the internet. So really it comes down to a question of who should we protect when we look at protections on the internet. Should we protect the corporation or should we protect the consumer? And then in Europe recently, the EU passed a new law dealing with the right to be forgotten. That means that if there's information you don't like on the internet, you have the right to have it removed. Now, that information has to fall into certain categories, like offensive, harmful, or irrelevant. But given some of the cases that have already been removed, it appears those standards aren't difficult to be met. Many say it's a law that should be expanded into the U.S. on the argumentation that humans change over time, but that the internet often doesn't accurately reflect that change given that nothing ever disappears. Furthermore, there's a humanist argument, which says that people have a reasonable right to privacy, and the internet violates that at times, often without the full realization of the people 
nor being subject to its privacy intrusions until it's too late. It's reasonable to expect things to be removed from the internet when they're stopping people from being able to move on with their life. On the other side, though, many people say that laws like the one in Europe infringe upon the right of free speech. Just because somebody posts something you don't like doesn't mean that you have a right to have it removed, and that is what has happened in incidences over in Europe. Uh, a banker who was talked about in a blog posting, I forget where it was, I think it was on BBC or maybe The Telegraph, um, either way, where it was posted about this banker, uh, the blogger was criticizing him for his role in the 2007-2008 global financial crisis, and the uh, banker got it removed under this law. And that would be censorship, right, of the press, after all. It's equally dangerous when you put power into the hands of corporations like Google to decide whose voice will be removed from the internet, as long as they can figure out a way to fit it into a series of vague categories like irrelevant. To paraphrase Harvard Law Professor Jonathan Zittrain on the issue, you have the right to remember things as you want, but you don't have the right to make other people remember things as you want. Both the right to be forgotten and net neutrality are issues that are becoming more prominent in America as the influence of technology and the internet grows, and they're both worth reading a little bit more about. Please email us your thoughts, opinions, comments, questions, inquiries, or really whatever else you want to email uh, to politicaltheorypodcast at gmail.com. That's all lowercase. And that's all lowercase. And I'll read your responses to the episode out loud, try to maybe answer some of your questions or do whatever else the email concerns in a future episode. Thanks. And be sure to turn in next episode when we talk about uh, the Second Amendment. <laughs>